Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Niana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. And today I'm speaking with Naledi Marajeli about her 2016 book, Women Political Leaders in Rwanda and South Africa, Narratives of Triumph and Loss, from Barbara Woodruff Publishers. Naledi is a gender activist, scholar, social analyst, and commentator on pressing social issues affecting women. She has a BA in Women's Studies and International Economics from Wheaton College in the United States and an MA in Africa Studies from the University of the Free State in Blomfontein, South Africa. She's currently pursuing her doctorate in higher education studies at the University of the Free State, and she works at the South African Human Rights Commission, where she conducts human rights education and monitors detention facilities for vulnerable people. She was recently named one of 2018's 100 Most Influential Young South Africans by the Continental Advanced Media. Women Political Leaders in Rwanda and South Africa explores the various multifaceted experiences of women in post-conflict political leadership and their experiences of democracy. Lady, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So to get us started, could you talk a little bit about your research and activism background and how you became interested in this project? Um, So in 2013, um, I was offered an opportunity to do my master's studies at the University of the Free State. I was offered funding. And um, I'd always been interested in um, issues of gender equality and women's rights. Um, I majored in that in my undergraduate studies, and I wanted to continue um, in my master's research. Um, I was interested in doing... In looking at countries that had um, been through conflict, you know, I'd always been had this fascination with women who um, had kind of defied social boundaries of what women are capable of doing and what they're supposed to be doing. And so I'd had this prior to doing my master's, I'd had this fascination specifically with women guerrilla fighters in Africa and also in Latin America. And so I wanted to do something around that, but I, I wanted to look specifically at South Africa, my own country, as a case study. And I wanted to look at women's involvement in politics and activism. And then I also decided then to include um, Rwanda because, you know, there are a lot of great things happening in Rwanda in terms of politics and gender equality. And so that's really how my book came about. It's, it was a monograph for my uh, master's research. And what was your research process like? Can you talk a bit about how you went about designing the research questions and finding your research subjects? Um, so it took about six months to secure my participants and interview them. Um, at one point, you know, I was based in South Africa, but I was traveling to Johannesburg to interview participants. And then I also traveled to uh, Rwanda and spent a few weeks there talking with participants. 
Um, mostly, so I mostly did, you know, the, the typical research study process of putting together a proposal, defending it, and so on. Um, and then securing participants, I largely relied on networks. So influential women I knew, including my supervisor, um, who is quite a, a prominent academic and activist in her own right in South Africa. And so she had access to some of these women and, you know, through that, then using the snowball method and the same with uh, Rwanda. And in Rwanda, I secured a lot of my participants through the uh, Women Waging Peace Network, which is an international network of women who have contributed to um, eliminating conflict in their countries and, and their regions. And so I relied a lot on that network for participants. And, you know, um, once I secured them, I went and interviewed them. I used um, a qualitative narrative inquiry using um, semi-structured interviews because I really just wanted their own voices to come out. I didn't want to, you know, lead them into giving me certain results or answers. I really wanted the book not just to be very technical in terms of political processes, but I wanted their own voices and their own stories to come out through the work. And so, you know, I would spend, you know, hours having long conversations with them, which, you know, made it quite difficult because then I had so much material to use and then write, trying to write that all up and, you know, create themes and all of that then became a challenge. But, um, yeah, so the actual, you know, field work, I'd say, took about six months. Uh, now, could you talk a bit about sort of the theoretical end? So what is the existing body of research and theory on women's political action and representation? And where would you situate your book? So um, it's kind of a relatively new um, area of research simply because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a new phenomenon to have, you know, women in parliaments and national legislatures and as presidents and prime ministers. Um, so it's only been for, I would say that the, this research field has only probably really um, taken off in the last three decades, especially previously the researchers looking a lot at Scandinavian countries because they've just been doing such a good job in terms of creating more gender equal societies, especially after World War II. And so, you know, at the beginning, this, this area of research was really focused on Scandinavian countries. But as other countries around the world started to have more women represented in politics, then, you know, then similarly, the, the research started looking at these countries as well. Um, in South Africa and Rwanda specifically, you know, this body of research is only about um, 20 years old because the, the uh, women's representation is really such a new phenomenon here. Um, initially, the research into uh, women and politics uh, tended to focus broadly, not just in South Africa and Rwanda, but broadly, it tended to focus on the how women get into political leadership? How do women get into legislatures? Um, this research largely look, looks at the use of electoral systems and what kinds of electoral systems are conducive or support increasing women's representation. 
the research has largely found that um, the proportional electoral system is, is the the best system really for um, improving women's representation. Um, and also, research has found around the world that it's not just enough to have a proportional electoral system, but it's also very important to have quotas um, to have women in representation, whether it's um, uh, constitutional quotas or uh, party quotas um, on candidate lists. And so these are kind of the key political mechanisms that are used to get women into political leadership. Um, but now, since now the kind of political systems have been identified, now the question is centering more around, well, now that more countries are having uh, more women in, in, in political leadership, what does that mean socially? And what does that mean politically? What is the ultimate impact of this representation? And that's now the bigger issue that this body of research is starting to shift to. And sort of a follow-up question to that, on a basic level, how do you define representation? Because you talk in your book about that it's more than just having women in positions of power, right? Yeah, so there's, um, theoretically, there's different types of representation. So there's uh, the descriptive representation, which talks about the numbers, um, the uh, head count. Then there's substantive representation, which talks about um, the impact of those numbers. And then there's symbolic representation, which is really is the point of all of this, right? Which is to say, what is the impact of, of this numeric representation? What is the impact of having all these women in political leadership? And, you know, basically making the argument that it's not just about putting women into these positions. It's important as a means of improving and increasing democracy and the quality of democracy. Um, but it's not, it should not be the be all and end all, right? That there should be some social, um, some political and economic outcomes from that. And so for me, that was really one of the bigger questions in my book is, you know, was looking at the, the substantive and symbolic representation in terms of what, does, what do these numbers mean in very uh, patriarchal societies? So that was, that was really my focus in terms of uh, representation in my research. And what is the current state of women's political representation in the two countries, South Africa and Rwanda? And how has it changed since the end of the official end of apartheid and the genocide in Rwanda? Um, well, the, the end of the genocide or the end of apartheid were really the key moments for, that created the environment that made it possible for women to be represented in politics in, in meaningful ways. You know, those conflicts created vacuums in society, in the political landscape where, um, you know, institutions basically had to be built from the ground up, you know, after periods of conflict, um, when the societies were now transforming and redefining themselves and trying to institute democracy. And it created like this perfect environment to increase women's representation. So it's really from after 
fall that we really start to see substantial women's representation in these countries. Prior to the conflicts and during the conflicts, there were women in, in leadership and political leadership, and they were very visible. Um, some of them were, you know, kind of on the wrong side of history. Um, you know, in Rwanda, for example, there was uh, a woman, I can't remember the, the complete name of the department, but basically a women's ministry who, and um, the, that minister, that woman minister was actively involved in the genocide. She was actively involved in the conflict. She was actively involved in the rape of women. And so there's always been women's leadership, you know, either on the good side of history or the wrong side of history in these countries. But where we really see a difference in the representation of post the conflict, at the, at the end of the conflicts in, in 1994. And since then, in Rwanda particularly, representation has steadily increased over time. You know, in their first elections after 1994, they were the first parliament in the world to have um, more women in uh, represented in parliament than men. So they literally had more women than men in their parliament. And this number has increased over the years. And it's largely due to political will, but also because their gender quotas are constitutional. That means they're mandatory. Um, whereas in South Africa, the, the use, there's also the use of gender quotas, but these are optional. And it's up to the discretion of the political parties about whether they want to implement quotas on their candidate lists. And so in, in South Africa, where it's not mandatory, where it's not a um, legislative requirement or constitutional requirement, the figure fluctuates. So sometimes, you know, you'll see more women elected, sometimes you'll see less, depending on the political environment. And of course, you know, there's the, there's the kind of internal political dynamics within parties um, that coincides with the patriarchal environment. So in South Africa, really, it's, 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 it doesn't, the representation is not a given, it's not guaranteed, and it fluctuates over time. But... Um, it's never reached a point where um, it's gone backwards at an alarming rate. Now, this is probably kind of a basic question, but what are some of the common arguments for the importance of increasing women's political representation in action? And then on the other hand, what are some of the critiques of representation as a solution to specific social problems affecting women? The main critique is that Increasing women's representation is not a guarantee, right? Um, it's not a guarantee that there would be a transformation of mm -hmm. the political landscape in terms of making it less patriarchal. It's not, it's not a guarantee that there would be any kind of substantive impact into society as a means of, as a result of increased women's representation. Um, another criticism is that there's a risk that you know, women politicians kind of can become co-opted into the patriarchal nature of politics. Um, so these are the main criticisms, and, and part of the debate is about, you know, how do we uh, guard against these. Um, the, the main um, reason why people advocate for uh, increased women's representation is one that it's a good democratic practice, first of all. You can't have, it can't truly be a, a democracy and not have 
you know, one of your bigger populations represented, adequately represented, right? And have their and not have their needs represented. So one, it's just good democracy. The second one is that, you know, in an ideal world, women politicians would represent the interests of ordinary women, especially in patriarchal societies. So that means they would be able to identify legislation that, you know, would disadvantage women, disadvantage girl children, and so on. And also within the um, sustainable development goals, kind of international framework in this current period, there's also that argument that, you know, empowering women empowers societies, empowers communities, improves the economy, and so on and so on. And so there's many debates on, you know, across on both sides in terms of what are the benefits and and the disadvantages of of women's representation. And I think... um, I don't think at this point there should be a debate about, you know, should there be adequate women's representation? You know, that argument of, you know, how can you not fully, uh, not have a, a significant portion of a population not represented in key decision-making positions? You know, in 2019, to me, we shouldn't even be having that kind of debate. But unfortunately, you know, uh, we're still quite internationally. We're still quite a, a ways from gender equality. So unfortunately, we are still even in the process of convincing people that women's representation matters. <laughs> what are some of the sort of major, like on the ground, problems that the women in the two countries have turned their attention to? Um, so immediately after the conflict, um, I think the the women were faced with a number of challenges. I mean, just in terms of basic women's rights, such as, you know, marital rights, um, you know, uh, marital rights, especially within uh, what's called customary marriages, which are basically traditional marriages that are not done kind of like in the Christian church or in the courthouse, but are done according to tradition, right? And finding that, you know, there were issues that women in those kinds of marriages were not protected in the law in terms of, you know, inheritance rights, uh, divorce rights, child custody rights, and so on. There was also issues of, you know, access to abortion, right, was also an issue um, in those very early years, Um, you know, and also equity in the workplace or employment equity, right, and hiring practices, you know, um, there was also needed legislation in terms of protecting women within the workplace. So, you know, legislation about gender-based violence, sexual harassment, and it was really, they really had to spend their time focusing on really basic laws that afford women really basic rights that they didn't have before. Um, in Rwanda, you know, after the genocide, you know, an interesting example, you know, most of the people who died in the genocide were men because, you know, some, because women were mostly raped and kept as, uh, as sex slaves. And so after the genocide, many women survived, but very few men survived. And so 
it being a patriarchal society, there became an issue of inheritance rights. So there were all these women who survived and their men were gone. And there was land and property left and relatives, you know, distant male relatives or male relatives from the extended family would just come and take everything. And so the women parliamentarians then had to make laws that, you know, uh, the girl child could inherit, the wife could inherit, a widow could inherit. And so they really had to focus on just creating the, the basic legislation for the most basic rights for women. And I've, not, and I've noticed that now over time, once those kinds of laws have been created, um, women leaders have spent less time on creating these types of laws that speak particularly to the rights of women and girls and even the LGBT community because they spent all those years kind of laying that foundation and groundwork. And now the current emphasis is just making sure that these are adequately implemented and also on changing societal attitudes. One of the most interesting things you talked about for me in your book was um, this question of conflicting identities, so gender, class, race. How did those shape and inform the political work of women in these two countries? Um, well, for example, in the South African case, um, many of these women were activists, not necessarily gender activists, before they went into power, right? Many of them... Um, were anti-apartheid activists. So their primary focus was on addressing issues of racial inequality and racial oppression and white supremacy. Um, And so that was kind of the foundation of their activism. And even in Rwanda as well, the conflict, the pre-1994 conflict was largely on, um, on, on along ethnic lines, right? And so on the surface, these were not gendered conflicts or issues. But of course, we know, especially if you are a gender activist, a gender scholar, you know the ways in which gender impact, uh, gender definitely plays a role in conflicts. Um, but so basically, their, their major focus was on, you know, these kinds of racial and ethnic inequalities and the way they manifested economically as well. And so, you know, they, 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 they are often faced with issues, well, specifically, they were faced with issues of having to make choice between, um, you know, fighting for women's rights and being part of the broader anti-oppression movement, whether it's apartheid or, you know, in Rwanda. And so, you know, women in South Africa, for example, talked about how they would want to talk about women's rights and gender inequality in their activist spaces. And they were told how, you know, they were being distracting. They were distracting everyone from the major issue, which was racial inequality. And here they bring these women's issues, which are really just side issues, right? And so they really faced the challenge of, just trying to put gender inequality and women's rights on the agenda to begin with in the post-conflict environment, especially that was especially the case in South Africa and Rwanda, not so much. Um, And so also having to, you know, even within, once they got into leadership in South Africa specifically, about where do their alliances lie, right? Do they go across the political aisle 
you know, to fight for women's rights, do they form cross-party political alliances where they found a common issue that speaks to gender equality and women's rights? Or do they toe the party line that we are not going to work with this party because these are our opponents? And so they constantly have to find that balance in their work. And it becomes an issue where they don't, they don't, they are not able to just do their work of being politicians. Part of their work then also becomes about changing societal attitudes and minds within their parties, within their networks, in their communities, and in society generally. And so it's ki- it kind of becomes a double burden for women politicians where they don't just do their work. They're not just, they don't just do the work they get paid for. They have this other, you know, it's not, we can't call it the second shift, maybe the third shift work that they have to do within their full-time jobs. So yeah, that, that is an issue. That was an issue that they experienced. Even now, I think it's still a huge issue because especially in South Africa, gender inequality is still a huge problem here. Uh, Now, going off of that, you make a really compelling argument for the definitive importance of women's early life experiences to their political identity. Could you talk a bit about that? I found within my participants, well, first of all, let me say in both countries, prior to the conflict, you know, as I indicated, women were extremely disadvantaged in both countries. I mean, not just during the conflicts themselves, but, you know, both countries had experienced colonialism and then... You know, in South Africa, after colonialism, then there was a fast state. And so women have always kind of been disadvantaged. There's been this marriage between, you know, uh, traditional customary patriarchy and kind of colonial Christian patriarchy. Um, so women in both countries have been extremely disadvantaged in terms of access to education, access to job opportunities, access to um, infrastructure, healthcare, and the list can go on. And so what I found interesting about all these women is that they are the elite compared to other women in their countries. Most of the women I spoke to were very well educated. Most had at least a master's degree. I think at the time there was only one who didn't have a master's degree. Um, some had studied abroad. Um, a lot of them had received their, their early education as refugees and exiles, which, which is the irony is that they had to leave their countries as a result of conflict. And it is through that process of being refugees and exiles that they were able to gain access to educational opportunities they were able to gain access to job opportunities in outside countries, which then enabled them to have the education and the skills and the expertise needed that then they could bring back with them after the end of the conflict. And that is what afforded them the ability to be able to contribute to their societies. And basically, it is what made them qualified to become political leaders. And so for me, that was something which is something maybe that is quite obvious that political leaders often are, you know, the elite in society. But these are women who became elite through severe adversity and really as just 
I wouldn't call it luck, but really it was just something exceptional that happened in their lives that didn't happen to a lot of people that really made it possible for them to become political leaders um, and made them qualified for those uh, positions. So it was, it's, I think that was one of the most interesting things that I talk about in my book, for me at least. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to go back to something you mentioned previously, um, the, some of the problems that women in Rwanda and South Africa encounter working within patriarchal societies just as women. So this is something that came up in your interviews. What are some of the solutions that women implement so that they can do this second and third and maybe fourth shift of the home and the family and the community as well as their political work? Yeah, so um, one thing that they talked about was relying on extended family members. Um, what was interesting is that they talked about, as much as many of them were gender activists, many of them have fought for women's rights, some of them were in marriages where um, there were definitely very strict gender roles. And so they those who were married or have been married talked about how actually having a husband would often become an obstacle because <laughs> in their work because they found that the husbands actually made their lives more complicated and difficult. And that because, you know, the husbands had certain expectations of their wives, whereas they found that, you know, childcare was much easier. Children had fewer expectations of them than husbands did. And so they would rely on, you know, extended family, on nannies to help them with things like childcare. Um, divorces did happen. You know, in South Africa, one woman did remark and joke and say, you know, she, she wishes she could have a wife so she could be able to focus <laughs> on, on her political career. And so uh, besides for just the patriarchal nature of their work, and, and, you know, the, the patriarchal attitudes and obstacles to their work, even in their personal lives, you know, even ironically, them being gender activists, you know, the, these very patriarchal nuclear family setups um, were actually, you know, huge barriers in their lives. Um, and, but luckily, you know, in Africa, there isn't, so much of that nuclear family set up, there's a lot of reliance on the extended family. And so they, in that way, I think they are more privileged than uh, women in kind of Western countries. And that, you know, here it's not um, taboo to rely on like grandmothers and um, mothers and, you know, siblings and stuff to assist with childcare and stuff. So that's, one way in which, you know, African women politicians are advantaged, I'd say. Yeah, and this is something that was really interesting to me. One of your interviewees mentioned that she felt like she was privileged compared to some of her Western counterparts because she could rely on extended family or outside help, whereas she felt like the Western feminists were judged for doing things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this actually takes us naturally into the discussion of how does the women's political movement in Rwanda and South Africa fit into the international women's movement? And what are some of the problems that emerge when Western European and African feminists work together? The international movement has been very instrumental for both Rwanda and South Africa, especially for the women leaders there, because um, it was through 
this international women's movement and networks that they learned that you know women's representation after conflict is not an automatic guarantee even though there's a right environment in terms of the vacuum and the uh, transformatory processes that take place from other countries women in other countries they learned that actually during that period it's very important that um they insist on being included otherwise they'll just be left out and you know after the conflict as much as you know their contribution to the conflict and resolving the conflict was valued afterwards women are kind of expected to go back to the kitchen and so it was through um engaging with women in other countries that South African women and Rwandan women learned that actually it's very important to insist on inclusion during that period. Um, they also, many of them also attended the uh, United Nations Beijing Women's Conference in 1995, um, where I think, you know, they kind of talked about, you know, learning a lot of lessons about now, now that they're entering, they're no longer activists, now they're politicians who have the power and the influence to make change. And so in that ways, the international women's movement and networks have been very instrumental and played, you know, very positive roles in women's representation in both countries. But there is, there has been um, criticisms, especially when these women are trying to do their, their work. Um, one of the main criticisms against women's representation and women's equality and women's rights in Africa is that, you know, this is a Western feminism, gender equalities, a Western construct, you know, homosexualities and African and all of these kinds of arguments. And so being part of the international women's movement has negatively affected them in that way. And it's, and it's not necessarily being a part of the movement, but how it's become a tool by patriarchs and unprogressive people to say that now, you know, these women are now importing these Western things into our African society. And so it's become a basis of basically rejecting these women's work and activism and um, rejecting the progress that has been made as a result of their work. And so that has been... A huge obstacle that is still a very dominant narrative, especially in South Africa, that, you know, women's rights, gender equality are un-African constructs. You know, Western feminists are brainwashing African women with these, you know, un-African things. <laughs> and, and so a lot, unfortunately, despite, you know, um, more gains in terms of gender equality and women's representation, there's still these societal attitudes that are still being dealt with you know, uh, more than 20 years later. And let's talk about some of the positives, right? So what are some of the greatest successes you would say are of women in politics in Rwanda and South Africa? So I think, like, as we talked about earlier, I think the legislative gains that they've made, uh, for example, in South Africa, as a result of that legislation, abortions and gender reassignment surgeries are available at public hospitals. Um. So uh, mm -hmm. now more women are entering universities, for example, than men. And so we definitely see positive results of, of that kind of foundational work that they did in the 90s. Um, Rwanda's economy is one of the fastest growing in Africa. Um, its economy is always winning 
you know, well, the country's always winning different awards for the great economic progress that it's making. And that's largely due to the policies and legislation that have been pushed for by Rwandan women. And so you definitely see the ways in which that early work that they did in the 90s, even today, there's still a positive um, impact as a result of those things. Um, Obviously, progress is slow. (laughs) Transformation is slow, especially where you have to change societal attitudes and you have to, you know, persuade certain sections of the population to give up their privileges. But at least now there's there's that foundation in terms of the legislation, right? And now there's no more that um, thing where you have to convince first and then you get what you want, which is what they faced in the 90s. Now, you know, regardless of someone's patriarchal attitudes, a woman can still go to the police station and insist on opening a case against, you know, domestic violence, right? regardless of whether the policemen in that police station agree or disagree that a man can hit his wife, right? Now, <laughs> those women are protected regardless of societal attitudes. And so I think those are really the greatest um, successes that they've made. What do you think are some of the, the sort of the biggest research questions that remain to be answered on the subject of female political representation? It's probably pretty broad, right? I think for me, what would be interesting is um, maybe having more longitudinal studies. I mean, a lot of the studies that exist, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, have focused on kind of these post-conflict periods, which is what my work looked at. But now I think it's uh, the, the, the research should do more longitudinal, longitudinal studies on the impact of women's representation. Um, and also, I think uh, more research is done is needed on in terms of, you know, now that these women have created this basic legislation for gender equality and women's rights, um, why is there now less emphasis on, you know, creating more legislation? There, there seems to be a um, not a regression, but I see that there's less work being done in terms of creating legislation that addresses various gender inequalities. Um, And so it'd be interesting to find out why there is that kind of slowdown. It seems to me that as, you know, as the years have gone on, a lot of these women have become career politicians and have lost that activism spirit. And so I see a lot, a lot less, activism from women politicians and it would be interesting if someone you know really looked into the details of how that happens and why that happens absolutely i think it's a pretty common story right revolutionary movements as they grow up have to find sort of footing in a more institutional uh model yeah exactly they become part of the the system Right. Uh, now can you talk a bit about your current research what you're doing for your phd Okay, um, so for my PhD, I'm still inter- interested in issues of gender equality and women's rights, um, also on a systematic level, but now I'm, uh, my work's focused on the higher education system 
um, when I was doing my master's research at a university in South Africa, there were um, there was a social movement that kind of erupted in 2015. It was called the fees, uh, the must fall movement, and it was basically students across the entire country protesting against the higher education system, uh, against different things like um, the high costs of tuition, um, lack of you know accommodation. There isn't enough accommodation. You know, how the curriculum is still very, you know, in the South African, African context, the curriculum is still very Afrocentric. Um, how the staffing complement has not transfer, transformed in terms of race and gender and so on. And so there was just this eruption of this movement during 2015. And there were, you know, a lot of protests, a lot of sit-ins, um, these were largely peaceful, but often the universities would make use of um, private security companies. The the state used the police force against um, these protesting students. And so it was really a, a significant historical moment in the country for reasons I won't get into. But so basically my research is interested in this movement, but I'm interested more in the th theoretical aspects of the movement because it wasn't just um, a movement based on the material realities of the students, but they grounded their protests in a lot of um, black consciousness theory and a lot of decolonization theory. And so I'm my current research is then interested in how does this then speak to uh, gender issues because there was a large part of the movement that focused a lot on gender inequality in higher education system and also how the system is discriminatory not just to women but also to the LGBTQI community. And so that's kind of where my research is currently. So still looking at issues of um, power and change and transformation and uh, gender. Well, we'll look forward to having you back in a couple of years to talk about your next project. <laughs> okay, thank you. Uh, so today we've been speaking with Naledi Marajeli about her 2016 book, Women, Political Leaders in Rwanda and South Africa, Narratives of Triumph and Loss, available from Barbara Budrick Publishers. Naledi, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for um, having me in this great conversation.